morning, everyone. It's really wonderful to have you here at church this morning. My name's Steve Frederick. I'm the senior minister here. Uh, and we'll be working together through uh, the passage, the second passage that was read for us a moment ago from 1 Timothy chapter 2. We looked at the first part of 1 Timothy 2 last week, uh, so we're just going to be looking in, focusing in on the second part of it this week, but we thought we'd read the whole lot by way of a reminder. Um, it is a challenging passage, and I don't think that's because it's impossibly difficult to understand or to make some good and worthy sense of, but most likely because we've all heard a whole stack of things spoken from these verses in the past. Some of them just plain confusing. I'll do my very best not to add to that collection for you this morning. But sometimes also quite offensive, burdening, anxiety-inducing and difficult as well. Uh, And so um, how about I pray and ask uh, that where our own ears are filled with thoughts of things that we've heard of before, fears that we have, uh, we would actually hear God's voice speaking uh, as we look at this scripture together this morning. Dearest Father, we ask that you would guard us this morning, that you would enable us to hear the words that you speak, not perhaps those words that others have spoken to us in the past or laid upon us, or perhaps even, Father, words that we've laid upon ourselves. Help us, Father, to listen to your words, words that are to safeguard and focus our attention on the wonderful news of the gospel that we find in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, over the course of this morning, of course, uh, Lauren's already mentioned you can submit any questions that you might like answered. It'd be really handy if you did that, even if you don't get it in while we're working through the passage, uh, even if it's just afterwards and we don't get to answer it. We are going to have a seminar on Wednesday, you'll see it there on your service sheets, uh, that'll give a chance for people who want to come together on Wednesday evening and look at how this passage sinks in with a whole lot of other passages in the scriptures that might also relate to some of the things that are discussed here. It'll be a chance for more back and forth, for you to ask questions in real time, uh, rather than waiting to the end of a talk uh, like this one. Uh, And so if you'd like to come along, I encourage you to come along then. Um, The other thing is there's been so much written on these verses, and I've read a good deal of it. Um, There's way more than anyone could read, but I think I've covered pretty much most of the bases. But I'm not going to spend this morning telling you all the options that I don't think are the case. But if you wanted to come back and say, but what about this? But what about that? How about this one? That's really what Wednesday night will also give a bit more space to, uh, if that's something that you'd like to engage with. Uh, I've also got um, on the uh, little blue table at the back of the church there, near the entrance, uh, a double-sided sheet that kind of explains how we think about both men and women ministering to all of God's family gathered together in their speech, in their words, and their encouragement. Uh, And so if you just want a little bit more detail that I'm not going to dig into in messy business uh, this morning, please do grab that on your way out as well. Well, please note, I'm not beginning with anything that is really able to be considered genuine cyber security advice. I'm not at all really up on cyber security, but I was reading a little bit about it Uh, over the course of this week. Uh, And the things that I read, you can tell me later if I'm wrong, cybersecurity experts, uh, is that insider threats are a greater threat too often to computer networks 
than those kind of threats that might come from outside the system, from hackers outside, that perhaps malicious or just misinformed use of those who are using a computer network within it can be some of the greatest threats to cybersecurity, sometimes even more so than those that are threats from the outside. And I think the same is true often of church life. Uh, last week, Paul was urging believers to pray that we might enjoy the quiet life. For quietness, Paul's speaking about here, is quietness or ease from social and political instability and insecurity, that we'd be allowed space to come to a knowledge of God's immense patience offered in Jesus without having to live in a world that is full of chaos and distractions and threats. But to Paul's mind, it seems that it actually wasn't the outside world that presented the greatest threats to the Ephesian churches. The greatest threats to the Ephesian churches came from within the church, from those who were twisting church life into the service of their own interests. Now, we've already encountered those who were false teachers, you might remember from previous weeks, those wannabe teachers of various myths and genealogies, twisted uses of Old Testament law, but it turns out that others in these churches were picking up on the cues given by the false teachers. Regular church members, both men and women, were taking a leaf out of the playbook, you could say, of these wannabe spiritual influences and teachers that were troubling the Ephesian churches. Church life was being internally compromised as people tyrannised and twisted various aspects of church life to suit their own personal agendas. We see Paul warning uh, about some of this, the first example of this, in a verse that's very easy to quickly read over, given the other content of this chapter, in chapter 2, verse 8. Have a look there with me, where Paul begins to reflect on these internal threats. Paul writes, verse 8, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. What had begun to mark the behaviour of men within the Ephesian churches was an unchecked tendency to both anger and disputing, both of which were undoubtedly provoked by the controversial speculations that the wannabe teachers kept spouting week after week. Men had begun to hijack the public church meetings as an opportunity to exalt themselves over one another in competition, disputing competition with one another. Uh, Timothy was actually, who this letter is written to, a bishop of the churches in Ephesus, he was going to have an ongoing struggle against this kind of toxic tendency within the Ephesian churches. Uh, let me show you another verse, it's from Paul's second letter to Timothy. The same issues were continuing on when Paul writes to Timothy a second time. Paul writes to Timothy, do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Uh, perhaps our own modern Sunday church gatherings are spared some of the kind of chaos that Paul is warning against 
in these verses. So much of our own outraged, angry disputing nowadays has simply moved online, where pretty much any controversy can escalate into a verbal riot involving more angry people than we could ever hope to fit into this church building on our Sunday gatherings. And yet I do think that even the private posture of church members that we adopt in our online debates, maybe even our growth group discussions midweek, even in our one-to-one conversations, those postures that we can adopt even privately will inevitably bleed back into our own shared church life sooner or later. And so in place of this angry posturing, this tendency towards prideful self-promotion, Paul commands men to instead exalt God in prayer rather than themselves. Prayer is at once both a humbling of ourselves, isn't it, at the same time as being an honouring and exalting of God to whom we pray. In contrast to exerting one's own agency, in contrast to posturing for our own status and standing, righteous prayer is in its very character self-abasing, that is self-humbling as we express a dependence on someone else, on God, as we express a willingness to submit to someone else, the God to whom we pray. I wonder for, for those of us who are perhaps a little bit disposed towards disputing in whatever form it might take. What if our only spoken contribution to church life ended up being prayer? If every other opportunity to speak was taken away and we only had the opportunity to contribute to church life in and through prayer, would we feel robbed? Would we feel denied of our status and our standing within the church community? For those of us who assume it's our entitlement to speak, this can be a sobering question to ask ourselves. For Paul is addressing the men and saying, humbling prayer is the kind of speech that you should be pursuing and hungering to contribute to the church community rather than anything that might enable you to exalt yourself, especially that speech which might enable you to exalt yourself over another. The same prideful tendency towards posing and posturing exposed in the men's angry disputing with one another had, it seems, also exposed itself in the immodesty and the impropriety, Paul says, of some of the women who are a part of the church gathering. Uh, Have a look with me at chapter 2, verse 9 is where we'll pick it up from. Uh, You can tell that Paul's carrying on a similar idea by the way he begins verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Whereas many of the men had resorted to public disputing as a means by which to exalt themselves, it seems that at least a number of the women had chosen to exalt themselves by other means, through public displays of status, through dress that signalled independent means and standing. When Paul speaks of modesty in this passage, 
he's not making a comment about plunging necklines or bare ankles. That's not what Paul has got in mind when he addresses modesty, despite often how these verses tend to be applied. Nor is he suggesting that women should take responsibility for the immoral imaginings of ill-disciplined men who might be part of the church community. I actually recorded a Q&A on this very question when a similar theme came up, a similar mention of modesty came up when we were looking at 1 Corinthians. And I've included it there on your service sheets uh, if you wanted to look at how I spoke about modesty on that occasion. But what Paul has in mind in this situation are women who are posturing themselves, exalting themselves within the church community via worldly signals of status and standing, who are promoting their own glory rather than God's, posing through dress rather than disputing, as many of the men had obviously been choosing to do. Yet as was the case with the men's disputing, so with the dress of some of these women. Both were strategies by which believers sought to exalt themselves rather than to exalt God. And just as prayer was the means by which men would redirect their self-honour back towards God who actually deserved it, so women were to cease clothing themselves in status and instead redirect all honour towards God through the manner of their behaviour. Women taking responsibility for men's lust was not at all on Paul's mind in these verses. Women honouring God rather than themselves and men honouring God rather than themselves was Paul's exclusive concern from these verses. Along, though, with the status-hungry immodesty that marked how the men were speaking and how some of the women were dressing, Paul also speaks here of an impropriety in the way some of the women were engaged in church worship. It's a passage that bears striking similarity to comments that Paul had made in his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, If you go online, you'll be able to look back and search when we looked at that passage, um, perhaps compare what I said on that occasion. Though this passage has got significantly more detail to it than the 1 Corinthians 14 passage does, I think, the greater detail often hasn't made it really all that much easier to discuss in truth or reality. Have a look with me at the next following verses. Verse 11 is where we're up to. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Who exactly are the women being addressed? at this particular point in Paul's letter. I don't think there's any indication that Paul has in mind some specifically niche group of women to whom he's addressing. Yet at the same time, it does seem pretty clear from the context that's going to follow that it's particularly wives and perhaps even widows, younger widows, who Paul assumes he is addressing primarily with these words. Uh, the, the word that, you, and you'll notice that in the footnote there that um, is in your Bibles as well, the word for woman and wife are exactly the same word uh, in the original language which Paul wrote. It's only from the context of the passage that we can determine whether a particular distinction is being made. And as we work our way through the passage, and we can chat a bit more about it in question time or on Wednesday evening, I'll give a few notes as to why I think it's likely the case that Paul does have in mind, especially 
those who are wives in the congregation and those who were recently, until recently, wives. Uh, young widows are particularly addressed a little bit later on in the book as well. But then there's this other question as well. What exactly is this quietness that Paul is calling women to, to embrace? This quietness certainly isn't silence, as some former translations of the Bible have translated it. In fact, Paul is very often describing, and we've explained how we think a bit about in the note that I mentioned before, that women were to play active and speaking roles in the gathered church communities to which he was writing. It's not silence that he's speaking about, but a lack of communal turmoil and uproar. You might remember from the passage that was read at the start from 1 Timothy, uh, back in verse 2, the same word for quietness was used when we were to pray to live quiet lives. Paul didn't mean silent lives. He was saying lives that were free from external social and political uproar and chaos that stopped you actually enjoying and investing in those things that were most important. That's the kind of quietness that Paul is calling people to in this passage as well. Just as the men were to avoid angrily disputing when gathered together in the church community, likewise Paul's desire was that women and perhaps widows might be free to learn in the mixed gathering. That was itself an unusual thing for women to be equally involved in the learning practices of a community, that they might be free to learn in a mixed gathering without seeking to themselves assume teaching authority over men, quite likely their own husbands, in the same gathering. Now, it seems that a common trap for both the men and the women in the churches that Paul is addressing were assuming that the freedom to learn, no matter your status or standing in society, equally meant the freedom to authoritatively teach or to school others as well. And I do want to give just a word of caution at this point. Just because Paul is warning these women against assuming the authority to teach is not therefore legitimate to simply infer that it is men in general who do have the authority to either lead or teach. You might think, wait a sec, Steve, there's men, there's women, if I'm not saying that the men have the authority and women aren't, then who who on earth is doing the the teaching? We'll we'll dig into this question next week when we get to chapter 3, where Paul begins to lay out the role for church overseers, who alone were authorised to teach the gathered and combined church community. I'm sure there'll be stacks of questions about that, lots of things to work through on that front as well. We're not going to skip over it. Um, We do have that note by the door that gives a bit of an intro if you'd like to look at it uh, in advance. But nowhere ever does Paul imply that either teaching nor other kinds of leadership are automatically more native to men simply because of their gender. In fact, James, Jesus' own brother, insists, I've got it up on the slide there, that even very few men should even presume to take on the role of a teacher. That's one of those verses that I always feel very awkward being reminded to read publicly. So why does Paul instruct Timothy and Titus to appoint only men to that teaching office or of overseer? It's a pretty critical question. I don't think it's the focus of this passage, but it is one that we'll be working through together on Wednesday night and next Sunday and in several other passages throughout the rest 
of Tim, Paul's letter to Timothy. But perhaps the most baffling aspect of this passage for many of us has to be Paul's appeal to the precedent of Adam and Eve down in verses 13 and 14. What on earth do Adam and Eve have to do with any of this? Have a look with me to verse 13. Verse 13. Paul writes, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. As we come to these last somewhat bewildering and question-inducing verses, it's worth remembering that Adam and Eve don't simply represent males and females in general, but husbands and wives, man and woman who have become one flesh together. In fact, Eve's name is never mentioned in the Old Testament without at the same time explicitly identifying her as the one flesh wife of the one who is named Adam. Uh, Paul's meaning is somehow in this passage relating to marriage for him to choose to give some kind of rationale or explanation for his thinking with respect to Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam, Paul says, was formed first and then Eve. God first gave Adam authority over the garden. Uh, You might remember, though, that when he did give Adam authority over the garden, he looked at that situation and said, hmm, not good. And so then God gave Adam Eve, who shared in that God-given authority over the garden when she became one flesh together with Adam. Eve, though, we're told later on in Genesis 3, was deceived by Satan. She was fooled into thinking that by eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge, you might remember, she could gain autonomy from God himself, let alone autonomy from Adam, autonomy from God. And the result, of course, was curse, both for Adam and Eve. Uh, It's not dumping blame on Eve at this point. Adam disobeyed as well. And Genesis 3 describes Adam's own curse that he suffered. But here Paul does focus on the curse that Eve had to endure, which was the curse of grief and pain that is experienced in the midst of childbirth. To be married was to be caught up in, to be subjected to tasting that curse that belonged to Eve. And note that these are the very three points that Paul has been highlighting here at the end of his passage here in 1 Timothy 2. Actually, later on in this very same letter, you might like to look it up later on, I've got the the verse references on your service sheets as well. Later in the letter, in chapter 4, verse 3, we'll read that there were some teachers who were misusing the Old Testament Scriptures to forbid marriage forbidding marriage and the eating of certain foods. And Paul describes these male teachers as having sided with Satan. In, verse, in chapter 5, verse 11 and following, we'll also come across some particular women, particular group of women, who were opposed to being married and having children, while at the same time expecting the church household to financially support and bankroll their independence. 
And as was the case in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we looked at uh, a year or so ago, there were those who taught that to be married was to be spiritually compromised, to be tainted by the curse of childbirth's pain. That it was more spiritual to perhaps remain unmarried or to divorce even those that you were married to, or that it was more spiritual to at least abstain from sex within marriage. All these kind of ideas were circulating and flowing through the the early church life, the churches to whom Paul wrote. And given just how vulnerable women often are in modern marriages, let alone ancient ones, it's not at all surprising that such teaching may have had an attraction to it for many. And please hear me say this, there may indeed be times when leaving a marriage is the godly and righteous thing to do. And often in that situation, even support from the church should be expected and given. But Paul's assurances in this passage is that marriage and even experiencing the curse of childbirth, the pain rather, of childbirth and grief of childbirth, is no cause for spiritual anxiety or insecurity. It's no going to compromise one's spiritual status or standing to be married or to endure through that that cursed experience of pain in childbirth. Indeed, Paul says in the very last verse, for those who patiently endure in the faith and love of Jesus, the faith and the love of Jesus that Paul himself had poured into him, you might remember from back in chapter 1, for those who patiently endure in the faith and love of Jesus, God will save women through, that is, God will deliver, deliver women through even the spiritual curse of Genesis chapter 3 that's symbolized in the living death pain of childbirth. Paul is not saying in any way, shape or form that somehow having children is the means by which to be saved. He's saying that childbirth, that is a symbol, the sign of the pain of curse that women endure, women will be saved through that if they endure in faith and love in the Lord Jesus. This verse, friends, believe it or not, is not a weird sideshow to Paul's letter to Timothy, but lies at the heart of its good news message, that having the grace, the faith and the love of the Lord Jesus poured into one's heart is what will save us, that will deliver us through the curse, the suffocating curse of sin, whether it be that we be male or female. Hope is not found in the twisted retellings of myths, genealogies and spiritual laws that the teachers in Ephesus had been spouting or in the heavy-handed revolt against things that God created good like the banning and forbidding of marriage or the eating of certain foods that are pleasing to the eye and to the taste buds. Christian hope and security, as Paul says in the opening two verses of the letter, Christian hope is to be found in the Lord Jesus. And whatever our circumstance or situation, if we entrust ourselves to him, he will deliver us safely through the curse that we might otherwise have been left abandoned to endure for ourselves. Uh, How about I pray? Uh, I am aware that no doubt you've got at least as many questions, maybe more, uh, than you had when you came along today. Please do feel free to submit those via the QR code. 
or otherwise plan to come along uh, and join us on Wednesday. Uh, the other thing is to say, I'm very, very happy for you to come and grab me. Even if I'm talking to someone else, just come, they're probably asking me questions anyway. Just come and buddy in and join us uh, if you've got things that you'd like to discuss or ask me about following the service. Let's pray. Our dearest Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus alone you have established our hope. The one who will deliver us safely through all judgment that we might otherwise expect to taste because of our sin. Father, guard us against taking into action into our own hands in order to try and save ourselves, free ourselves from the burdens and taste of curse that so often comes along with this life. Help us to humbly entrust ourselves to you. Father, particularly in our speech, we, might, we ask, Father, that you might take out of it all anger and disputing, all tendency towards exalting ourself, and then instead, Father, everything that comes from our lips, every action that comes from our hands, might be directed more to your honour and glory than to our own. That others might likewise come to know the immeasurable patience that can be found in your gift of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.